It's Monday, November 6th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. We've all seen the polls of the looming Biden-Trump rematch, and we've all heard the ubiquitous and not unreasonable dismissal. Yeah, that's a national poll. There's no such thing as a national vote. Fair enough. So the New York Times conducted a reporting on the finding of state polls. And to quote their research, Trump leads Biden in nearly every battleground state new poll finds. Okay. So that old dismissal, just a national poll, that one's off the table. What's the new dismissal? Jonathan Carl of ABC News, an author of Betrayal, the final act of the Donald Trump show, was on This Week this week, arguing that the thing about Trump is most people don't realize the kind of guy he is. Biden's negatives are on television every day. You see them. Um, Trump, is, Trump has become also increasingly uh, confused about things. He, sometimes he thinks that he lost uh, to Obama in the last election. He confuses uh, basic facts, uh, says some rather strange things, but there isn't much attention paid. As we get closer to these primaries, we'll see where not just Trump is based on these criminal cases, but where he is now as a, as a human being. Donald Trump, it turns out, lies. And not a little bit. People don't realize that. Donald Trump says untrue, angry things. This is going to shock a lot of people once they learn. The Donald Trump that they thought they knew is nothing like the current guy who's a petty, vicious, unhinged madman. And once people know this, Joe Biden, who only seems bad because people are paying attention to him, let that sink in for a second, Joe Biden will be on a glide path or a motorized scooter to victory. Over on CNN's State of the Union, Representative Jasmine Crockett argued that it's not just the understanding of Trump that's a problem, it's the understanding of facts themselves. And so while the facts may not align with their feelings, their feelings are dictating their reality. Their reality is that they said that they feel better or they felt better when Trump was in office. But we've been trying to push back. We've got some very popular African-American artists that are out here saying things like, oh, I got checks when Trump was in office. I want those checks again, not understanding that that really came from Congress. So we've got a couple of things, the perception issue, and then we also have an issue as it relates to civics in this country and people not understanding exactly how any of this works. So at this point, with an underinformed public being civically deprived, well, in that atmosphere, Biden's losing. But once we get all that sorted out and everyone understands civics and is smart, then Biden's an orthopedic shoo-in. Here's Joe Biden's problem. People are not inspired or reassured by him because he seems old and doddering. He is old. And while doddering is subjective and also not a precise indicator of overall sharpness, that's not going to change. You know, the economy can't really kick in because it has already kicked in and people don't notice or care. There aren't that many new initiatives out there to break through in a way that the massive stimulus or drug negotiations haven't already broken through. So yeah, the best argument for Joe Biden's re-election is don't worry. Trump will convince everyone he's worse. It will become clear that Trump is worse. And think about that. It's not apparent now that the current president isn't better than Donald Trump. I think Joe Biden, I mean, I've read the polls. They don't make me happy. I don't dismiss them. I still think 
Joe Biden will win, maybe 60-40 chance, maybe 55-45. 55-45 for Donald Trump to be president again. Donald Trump, who just today had a hissy fit in a New York courtroom. Oh, if only America knew. If only they took the full measure of the man. Yeah, you know, I think they know. I think they know already. I think it's the people explaining away these poll numbers who could use a bit of knowledge to go along with their theories where hope does a lot of the work that strategy should be doing. On the show today, oil, big oil, big stupid protests over oil and paintings and oil paintings. But first, Beyond Utopia is a new documentary from director Madeline Gavin. The film follows various North Koreans attempting to flee their country. It also follows the pastor based in South Korea who's helping them to do so. We have undercover footage. We have never before seen cell phone shot film as these people struggle to traverse borders and barriers and ravines and the elements. It's gripping. And on to discuss will be one of the people who fled North Korea, Soyeon Lee, and the director, Madeline Gavin. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks. It's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Beyond Utopia is a somewhat amazing new documentary by the filmmaker Madeline Gavin. Its cast is listed as Douglas MacArthur, Soyeon Lee, and then it goes on because Soyeon is a defector from North Korea who is with us now along with Madeline, and it follows families who not just have past tense defected from North Korea, but are defecting. We follow them as they sneak out of the country across the river through China, and I don't want to give too much away, but even if you're like me, you're fascinated by the process, horrified by the government, and interested in the stories. I do think this is the first time that you are invited along on this harrowing journey. I promise not to say harrowing too many times in this interview, but it comes across so blatantly in the movie. Madeline Soyun, welcome to The Gist. Thank you. Thank you. And we will say that Soyeon is speaking through her translator, uh, Sonny Parker. Madeline, how did you, I've looked at your career and you have an interest in, you've done a film on uh, poverty in Africa and women in prison. So different continents, 
different populations that are going through extremely tough times? How did you come to the North Korean defector situation? So I was initially approached by um, our producers. They had acquired the rights to Hyunseo Lee's memoir. Hyunseo Lee defected from North Korea in the late 90s. Um, and she wrote a memoir, but it was obviously something that was in the past. And, you know, I read it, it was haunting and beautiful and sort of started to open up this world of North Korea, which I really didn't know much about other than what we see on the news. And I knew for sure that there was no way that I thought I should be making this movie unless there was something that I felt I could contribute or some specific thing that, you know, was driving me and, and that made it, you know, made me the right person to do this. Um, but reading that book did spark a curiosity. And I began a journey of many months of research of, you know, reading everything I could find, digging into the internet, using VPNs, searching from different countries and languages. And I discovered all this hidden camera footage coming out of North Korea, you know, shot by these very brave North Koreans who are really risking their lives to get the truth of their country out. And the more that I researched, the more outraged I became that we were never hearing from the people themselves, you know, the 26 million people inside North Korea. And at a certain point with everything that I was discovering, you know, this hidden camera footage of what real life is like, this, these weird little pockets of propaganda footage I was finding out of North Korea. At a certain point, I was like, my God, this movie must be made. And so that started the journey. And I knew from the beginning, I didn't want to do you know, a recreation of, a, of, a, of an escape 20 years ago, I knew that there had to be something about North Korea now. And it was when I started shooting in South Korea with Hyunseo, uh, the writer of that memoir. Who's, maybe people have seen her do TED Talks and she's she's out there. She's pretty famous. She speaks great English and, but she has been in South Korea for decades. Yeah, she, well, she, so she left in the late 90s, North Korea, she was actually stuck hiding in China for 10 years and then ended up getting to South Korea. And um, and she and I would talk about this. Like we, she knew I wanted some present. I felt like if, if, if I'm gonna do this, we have to really try to bring the people of North Korea out to the wider world because they just have not been given voice in the 70 years that they that country has existed. And, um, and so it was really, I think on my second or third trip to Seoul, that I read about Pastor Kim and met him. And, you know, then it was many months of him and I getting to know each other. But in the end, it was like he and I had the same sort of conviction as to what this film would have to be. Right. And at a certain point, we just we just became sort of a team and he opened up a whole world to us. Because a great issue or an important issue isn't necessarily a great film. And what makes this a great film or aspires to be, and I would say achieves it, is the footage, the actual undercover recordings of the defections. And so I suppose when you saw that, that sort of blew your mind, as it will the viewers of the movie. Yeah. I mean, the, the so the hidden camera footage from inside North Korea is laced throughout the film. The footage of the actual, we follow two attempted escapes. The footage of a family of five, the Roe family, uh, from small children to a grandma in her early 80s, that footage was shot, you know, by by us and by uh, Pastor Kim's network. Pastor Kim is a part of the Underground Railroad that goes through China and into Southeast Asia that tries to help defectors, and he's got a vast network. 
Yes. In China, for instance, the, that footage, because it would be far too dangerous for the, you know, we would risk the family's safety if we were to go into China. And Pastor Kim doesn't even go into China anymore because the North Korean regime has known about him for 20 plus yeah. years. He used to go, he explains he used to go into China. He had a partner there. His partner was abducted and tortured. And so now he knows it's uh, way too dangerous. Yeah. So that footage in China was shot only by the Underground Railroad. Um, and by a family member of the family that was attempting to escape. And then we were shooting in Southeast Asia on the border of Thailand and Laos and Vietnam and Laos, and then also in South Korea. So, Soyun, how did you, how were you approached by Madeline or Pastor Kim to be involved in this project? So at the beginning, I just wanted to bring my son from North Korea. So actually, I went to Pastor Kim's office to ask her help. Right. So you made it out of North Korea when? When did you defect? So first time I flew from North Korea was 2006. And when I reached to China, I got captured and repatriated to North Korea. And second time I flew, it was 2008. And the time I made it into South Korea. Did they punish you uh, after your first attempt? So as a North Korean defector, when you capture, there is not uh, many names of what we did wrong. For example, we need to punishment under we betrayed our own country. Also, illegal crossing, so on. And when we get to North Korea, also there is a several different punishment. For me, I was captured just staying in China. So my punishment little lighter than other North Korean defectors who were actually going to go to South Korea. So my case, I got six months sentence to labor camp. But there was people captured and they found out they were going to go to South Korea they get three years of sentence in jail. So you, in 2008, you successfully defected. How old was your son then? And how soon did you begin the process of trying to get your son out? So in 2008, my son was six years old. And after 11 years, I was able to start even thinking about bringing my son to South Korea. Tell me about the decision not just to get your son out of North Korea, which is one thing, but to do so while being filmed by a documentary crew and working with filmmakers. How? Why did you decide to say yes to that? As I said, when I went to Pastor Kim for the first time to request rescuing my son. That time, Pastor Kim and I talk about, okay, we will need to brainstorming to find the best way or safety way to bring my son. So after that, we were still thinking to find the best way and I waited. And around the process, actually Beyond Utopia team approached Pastor Kim. And then Pastor Kim called me about this Beyond Utopia team. And he asked me if he, I want to agree to be in film. So at the beginning, I thought about maybe it can be dangerous, but I thought about a little more. 
actually when you involve this filmmaking, also, you know, rescuing and bring my son or any depicting, it's all relating money, the cost. Sometimes it gets higher or I need to think about which way it will be safe. But if we involve with the Beyond Utopia, that way, I'm sure we are only going to bring my son along, which will be more safe. Then I don't have to wait other bunch of, of defectors. And for filming, we put more security, actually, because if you need to bring one defector alone, defectors alone, maybe involve with one car. But if we filming, we will bring three cars for extra safety. So I just figured that maybe I agree to filming. It will be more safer for my son. And plus, I wanted to bring him, uh, send him to the United States to study by, like, after a war. So I, I agreed. Got it. So, Madeline, this brings me to a question for you. There are obviously risks and rewards of involving the camera. The rewards you articulated by that's by the fact that that's how you even got um, interested or compelled to do the story because of this undercover footage. But of course. Just the presence of the cameras or the chips uh, raises the stakes. So I want to ask a little bit about those considerations. Um, first of all, you had to be very careful about giving away tradecraft and there are faces pixelated. But what else did you have to do to scrub any details that might signal to the North Koreans who you have to assume will be watching this um, not to you know, give away any information that could harm an individual or the process in general? Yeah, I mean, we we had to deal with this, obviously, on so many different fronts um, in terms of, you know, uh, obviously the security and safety of, of, you know, us not putting people more at risk was was the first and most important thing of all, which is precisely why, you know, in China, obviously none of us were there. It was the people who are in the network themselves who were literally filming with their flip phones. Um, and not drawing any extra attention. You know, um, the footage that you see of the family in the mountains of Chiang Mai is shot by initially by the farmer who found them in the mountains of Chiang Mai, and then by various brokers uh, along the way in China. Um, in terms of everything else, I mean, from the routes to the, the faces of the brokers, you know, with the, with the Roe family, there were more than 50 brokers involved, some of whom are, you know, working for doing this just for money, and some of whom are more a part of the spiritual mission of the Underground Railroad and are working more sort of aligned with Pastor Kim's church and and all of that. But there were more than 50 brokers involved. Um, their faces, as you said, have been blurred um, to the extent that they're even on camera at all. Their their voices have also been, you know, EQ'd to be unrecognizable. Everything really in terms of security came from Pastor Kim in terms of he dictated, you know, where we could be when um, and what we could show. I mean, we have maps in the film um, and those maps do show the general trajectory of an escape through China into Southeast Asia. But of course, they these are, are not. super. These are geopolitical maps. These are. Yeah. Yes, these but are they're not show, the, they're not route accurate. Yes, you know, with the, the safe red lines houses, like in Indiana Jones movies. Yes, exactly. <laughs> the, the safe houses that we shot in in Vietnam and Laos. I mean, I would say to Pastor Graham all the time, "Are you sure we can show this house?" And he's like, "Yeah," because they switch it up constantly. There's the, the places where we were shooting were never going to be used again, and this is the way it always is with with his routes. Um, 
in terms of Soyan and the Roe family, you know, all of us, and this is, Pastor Kim talks really beautifully about this, that this film was really kind of about trust and courage. And there was such an element of trust from everyone. And for us, you know, the trust was, we knew the only way to make this film or even attempt to make this film was to go all in, not knowing if we could actually use any of it. Meaning at the end, if the Roe family hadn't wanted to be on this film after all of this, we wouldn't have been. We wouldn't have used them. Soyun, I just want to ask you a couple questions that are about your time in North Korea and what the mindset of the North Korean is, or what yours was. So the first question is: I know it's dominated by propaganda. So how did you know that life was better elsewhere? So when I was in North Korea, I volunteered to go to the North Korean army. I made a decision because when you become, when you serve the North Korean army, after that you can become a member of the party. When you become a member of the party, it's very honorable for the family and also our get power within North Korea. So I went there. Even I became uh, followed the process, have a little more honor and power. The salary I get for months, I can only buy three candies with the salary. And after I finish the army service, even absolutely they're not going to give me pension or anything like that. Just that's done. When I come home, my father was the my father was the college professor. His salary, he could get 50 cents, like half of the dollar in a month. Even my mother was the, uh, the official at the party. But even I have a little, you know, higher, I, I came from the little higher class family. But still, even for us, we cannot, we cannot have enough food, clothes, or shelter. So after I discharged from the army service, I see around me, I've been hearing, I've seen people dying from hunger. I see this orphan on the street without parents and without home. And I see people like dying and I talk to the ladies that their kids are dying because of the malnutrition. And I hear story, if we go outside the world, People saying China is 50 years advanced than North Korea. South Korea is 100 years advanced in North Korea than North Korea. And if I do dishwash in the uh, in the restaurant, I will get $1,000 per month. So I didn't believe because of what I heard, oh, there is more paradise and better world. People have to cross the border in order to survive and find food. Yeah. And what percentage of North Koreans would you say want to defect? So in my opinion, except only 5 to 10% people, all North Korean people, like higher people, then probably people beside that they want to escape from their reality. That 5 or 10% higher people that I'm thinking about, people in Pyongyang, 
who share power of, of North Korea, Kim Jong-un's region, and you know, higher position. Besides that, everybody wanted to escape from their reality now. Okay, so uh, just to get it clear, she's saying the top 5 or 10% didn't, but everyone else did? Correct. Madeline Gavin is the director of Beyond Utopia. One of the people she follows in the movie is Soyeon Lee, and we heard from her through her interpreter, Sonny Parker. Beyond Utopia is out in theaters now and will be on Hulu uh, starting in January, but go out to theaters if you want to see this really riveting, amazing film and support the work of Madeline and Soyeon. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Great civilizations throughout time and in each epoch shed one fuel source for another, another that's more plentiful or more efficient. The power supplied by the bodies of the baleen whale were surpassed by the glories of the steam engine, just as the water mill gave way to the piston. And so too will we transition from fossil fuels. But who will lead us and how will it be done? Today, we got another hint of an answer. It will not be through innovation or political will. No, we will have to smash up old oil paintings on the path towards progress. Today in London's National Portrait Gallery, two protesters from Just Stop Oil smashed up a 17th century Diego Velasquez painting and then made a speech. So they've got instant credentials because their smashing skills were without parallel. The main smasher, identified by British authorities as Harrison, age 20, had not just the credibility and standing to disseminate his transcendent message, he also had the words. If we love history, if we love art, and if we love our families, we must just stop oil. I gotta admit, I thought transitioning off fossil fuel would require a lot of hard choices. But now I'm kind of embarrassed. All it takes is to say, we just must stop oil. Else I suppose we'd be consigned to the just bin of history. And as discussed, one of the favorite tactics of the just, just stop oil crowd is gluing themselves to the frames of portraits. I've discussed this on past gists. This act was more of a smash and grab your attention, but the obvious, an undeniable link between fossil fuels and a nude portrait originally known as the Toilet of Venus or Venus at her mirror, La Venus del Espejo, well, that link cannot be ignored. This desecration of works of art in order to change hearts and minds, it worked really well for the Taliban, though they did have Kalashnikovs and burkas, but maybe just because they were out of lots of glue and a couple hammers. Still, the point stands. A big change is coming, and the idiots are going to lead us. The only thing standing in their way is maybe one extra security guard who's actually paying attention. Another hurdle might just be the, I'm going to say, nearly ubiquitous confusion and disgust that such acts inspire, even among the most climate-anxious people who recycle, own a Tesla, maybe even vote for the Green Party, but still say, what did Diego Velasquez ever do to you? These people, they are nonplussed. I mean, look, maybe Velasquez's other masterwork, Old Woman Frying Eggs. Okay, maybe that invites some legitimate questions and what kind of oil 
gas or electric stove, free ranger factory farm. But it's too late. That painting is in the Scottish National Gallery in Edinburgh, and the Meet is Murder crowd has a glue-in already scheduled for that one. It's all part of the global marriage of reasonable policy goals to insane, out-of-control expressions that will ultimately discredit the argument. My only hope is that extremely unreasonable and unwise policy goals are also being advanced by stupid, stupid arguments that regular people do not, cannot, and will never understand. And with that, I leave you, I bid you adieu, I have to catch a production of the Royal Shakespeare Company's performance of Julius Caesar, where someone from Greenpeace, in order to save the rainforest, is going to rush the stage and defecate. Dudu Brute, and scene. That's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is CLFAO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Do peru, do peru, do peru, and thanks for listening.